Well, good morning. I have the joy this morning of introducing our guest speaker, Eliza Love, who I will bring up and pray for in just a second, but I want to kind of set her up. We are in a 10-week series on King David and the complexities of his life, the highs and the lows, and finding in our kind of our own story that complexity. Today's story is a story about David getting so lost in worship uh, that he makes people uncomfortable people close to him. Uh, There was a song, actually, I sang uh, in youth group growing up called Undignified. Anybody know this song? But the line of it was, I'm going to get more undignified than this, which is out of this story, the idea that we can be so caught up in joy and gratitude in God that we just sort of lose all sense of social decorum. That has not happened probably for you. Uh, It doesn't always happen uh, on Sunday morning. And I wonder why sometimes where we just sort of have some barriers that maybe to just being that lost in God's goodness. Uh, and in this story, it hi- highlights, as we've seen throughout uh, this series, that there's some complexity in David's life. My guess is there's some complexity in yours, and you're going to see that today. So we're going to invite Eliza Love forward, and I'm going to pray for her. Would you welcome Eliza as she comes? Eliza, who, uh, since she was last with us as an intern in 2021, has graduated from seminary. So we should probably, like, that's a big accomplishment. Someone said, oh, you graduated already. And she said, there's no already. Uh, no, it, it, it was a, it's a big accomplishment. So Eliza, welcome. Let's pray. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your work in uh, Eliza's life and in our church uh, for the story that we encounter today. And for the possibility of finding ourselves both in the highs and in the lows of David's life, in the the simple parts and the complexity. And I pray your blessing on Eliza and on us, that above all else, your spirit would speak to us. And we would find ourselves in this story, and then as we come to communion, find ourselves in your presence, lost in wonder, love, and praise. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It's so good to be with y'all again. I've been here a few times this summer already, but good to be with you in this capacity. So as Adam said, we are going through the book of First and Second Samuel. So we are journeying along with David. And I feel like if there is one story that reveals the possibilities that people like us encounter in our life and with God, it would be the story of David that we see unfold in First and Second Samuel. We've seen David go from the shepherd boy to being anointed to defeating Goliath, David having an immense amount of faith, David struggling with his faith. And for me, David is a story that stirs me. I imagine it stirs a lot of you all. In different parts of his story, there can be parts where we feel really empowered and we might really identify with what's going on with David. And there are other parts of the story where we might feel defeated. We might feel confused. What is happening here? And in many ways, I think we find ourselves in the person of David. There are noticeable differences in our past, to be sure, but where we might align with David is in these murky waters. 
And David has a lot of murky waters in First and Second Samuel. But I think that's, that might be where we meet him. We meet him in these unresolved tensions and maybe contradictions in our life. And we really see that displayed in David's. And so this morning, our scripture comes from early in David's kingship in 2 Samuel chapter 6. So I'm going to invite you all to hear these words and consider how God might be calling you today. It's a long passage, so bear with me, but it's an interesting story. So once David assembled, once again, David assembled the select warriors of Israel, 30,000 strong. David and all the troops who were with him set out for Balah, which is Kiroth-Jerim of Judah, to bring God's chest up from there, the chest that is called by the name of the Lord of heavenly forces. This chest is also known as the Ark of the Covenant. You might know it as that. But the chest that sits enthroned on the winged creatures. They loaded God's chest on a new cart and carried it from Aminadab's house, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, Aminadab's sons, were driving the new cart. Uzzah was beside God's chest while Ahio was walking in front of it. Meanwhile, David and the entire house of Israel celebrated in the Lord's presence with all their strength, with songs, zithers, harps, tambourines, rattles, and cymbals. King David was told, The Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's family and everything he has because of God's chest, the Ark of the Covenant, being there. So David went and brought God's chest up from Obed-Edom's house to David's city with celebration. Wherever those bearing the chest were, they advanced six steps. David sacrificed an ox and a fatling calf. David, dressed in a linen, a priestly vest, danced with all his strength before the Lord. And this is how David and the entire house of Israel brought up the Lord's chest with shouts and trumpet blasts. As the Lord's chest entered David's city, Saul's daughter, Michal, was watching from a window. She saw King David jumping and dancing before the Lord, and she lost all respect for him. The Lord's chest was brought in and put in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. Then David offered entirely burned offerings in the Lord's presence in addition to well-being sacrifices. When David finished offering the entirely burned offerings and the well-being sacrifices, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of heavenly forces. He distributed food among all the people of Israel to the whole crowd, male and female, each receiving a loaf of bread, a date cake, and a raisin cake. Then all the people went back to their homes. David went home to bless his household, but Saul's daughter, Michal, came out to meet him. How did Israel's king honor himself today, she said, by exposing himself in plain view of the female servants of his subjects like any indecent person would? David replied to Michal, I was celebrating before the Lord who chose me over your father and his entire family and who appointed me leader over the Lord's people, over Israel, and I will celebrate before the Lord again. 
I may humiliate myself even more, and I may be humbled in my own eyes, but I will be honored by the female servants you are talking about. And McCall, Saul's daughter, had no children to the day she died. This is how the chapter ends, and there is a lot there to be sure, and we're going to unpack it together. But David is putting his entire being into worship and glorifying the Lord, ushering in this Ark of the Covenant, this chest that we heard about. And now the Ark of the Covenant, the chest, was considered the holiest of holies for the Hebrew people. Earlier in 1 Samuel, we hear about how the chest, the Ark of the Covenant, was with the Philistines, and now it is with David. Physically, it's a wooden box, was a wooden box, is a wooden box, supposed to be holding the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod, and other significant items. But even more so than these items, the Ark of the Covenant represented God's goodness and God's protection, a sign that was with, that's meant that God was with the people of Israel. So David is literally ushering in God to the Israel people. The Ark was the holiest of holies, not because of what it contained, but because of what it did. The Ark invited people into the story of God, into the work of God. Now, things like the Ark of the Covenant can get a little confusing. We don't really know about, maybe we don't really know about that in our current modern age faith of what the Ark of the Covenant really means. And so Eugene Peterson offers a helpful description of what it is and more so what it meant to the Hebrew people. So I'm going to read some of what he says to you all. He says that the Ark did not have magical properties. The people were never taught that the Ark was a source of power that they could plug into. But the Hebrews were a historical people. They believed that God worked in their lives and did things. God wasn't a blurred glow of sentiment. God wasn't an abstract God. God wasn't a bearded judge exacting away. But God was personal in history, creating and directing and saving and blessing. And God entered the affairs of the people. And when he did, he judged and saved. And he called to account and he blessed. But most of all, God loved. He entered into covenant with his people through the ark, giving them the dignity of sharing the work and living in faith and love. So the ark was a significant symbol that kept all of that hope in front of the people. And so David rejoices in these truths. It's a big deal that the ark is here, and he's excited about it, obviously. He makes it a big point to keep the ark in front of God's people, in front of his people, reminding them and worshiping in the truth that God is love and goodness. Throughout our weeks with David, we have continued to see the endless love that David has for God and that God has for David. As David is, as we have heard, a man after God's own heart, God casts a great deal of hope upon him. And as David is unashamedly dancing as the ark ushers into the city with triumphant return, 
I imagine such astonishment in David's eyes. From a shepherd boy who goes from that to finding the goodness of grace that God has for him, that God has for all of us, to a God that calls him beloved, David in this moment is even more awakened to life abundant through God. Exuberance is all over the passage. From the first verse in chapter 6, we hear that there's 30,000 warriors. There's multitudes of kinds of cakes. People are having a time. It's a big deal. And for us, as the readers here, we have kind of a bird's eye view into what's happening. We learn that David's celebrations later on in the passage, we learn this, were not pleasing to everybody in Israel. Not everyone was rejoicing exactly in that way. And so McCall, David's wife, does not like the actions that she is seeing. And even further than that, Scripture tells us that she sees them as shameful. In the latter part of the passage, we hear that as David was entering the city with the Ark of the Covenant, Michal, daughter of, wife, daughter of Saul and wife of David, is watching from the window. And we already read it, but I'm going to read it again for us. In verse 17, it reads that when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Then a couple verses down, after sacrificing burnt offerings for the Lord and such as that, David returns home and McCall comes out to meet him, asking a bit sarcastically sounding, perhaps, how did Israel's king honor himself today? And then she answers her own question. I'm going to imagine there wasn't a lot of time for him to answer. But she says, by exposing himself in plain view of the female servants of his subjects like any indecent person would. And as we've already read, David replied to McCall saying, I was celebrating before the Lord who chose me over your father and his entire family and who appointed me leader over the Lord's people, over Israel, and I will celebrate before the Lord again. I may humiliate myself even more and I may be humbled in my own eyes, but I will be honored by the female servants you are talking about. And then it says that last verse. It's the last verse of the chapter, last verse of our passage today. It says, McCall, Saul's daughter, had no children to the day she died. It's good to name the awkwardness in the story. And at times, even further, it's helpful and good and healthy to name the harm within the story, to name the oddities we find throughout First and Second Samuel, and honestly, just throughout the Bible in general, in Scripture, is a worthwhile task, and a task nonetheless. We should probably be asking some questions. Now, I'm going to show my cards here, put them all on the table, and say that I personally am not totally interested in explaining away the last sentence we are left with in this chapter. There are, of course, a variety of different approaches to analyzing the last verse. Perhaps the author wanted it to be clear that Saul's line was stopped since McCall was Saul's daughter, 
Really, any hypothesis you have is probably one that a biblical scholar has as well to work to explain why this is here. But we don't necessarily know, perhaps this or that. But at the end of the day, we know that these words are and can be incredibly harmful to multitudes of people in this room and in this world. And hearing the exchange of words between McCall and David, and then hearing the last words in this chapter end with such a seeming kind of defeat or some kind of twist, it, it it's kind of hurts. It's difficult, because this is really the last we hear of McCall from what we see directly in the text. And perhaps we might say that it comes down to David being able to recognize God's greatness and McCall failing to recognize God's greatness. But again, showing my cards once more, I don't think it's just that simple. Like many of the strange stories of David's first few years as king, this narrative plunges us into an uncharted territory. While we celebrate this triumphant entry into the city, and it is beautiful, and it is worthy of celebration, and the echoing of God's goodness is worth talking about, I can't help but feel stuck in the abrupt exchange of David and McCall, wondering what is happening here. The ark arriving in the city meant something not just for David and God's relationship, but for the relationship of God and the community. Although we hear the highlights of David's personal exuberant dancing, the worship is communal. We can imagine his joy seeping into others' hearts and the people of Israel rejoicing in gladness. And also, at the same time, his exchange with McCall feels a little insular. Rather than hear the perspective of McCall, who has been around this whole king thing a time or two, who saved him back in 1 Samuel 19, who, know, who David knows loves him, who perhaps is just worried about his own faith, she is shut down and almost just about her identity is as well in the passage. As we consider all the layers of what is happening here, what we don't have to say is that David really gets it right here or that David really gets it wrong here or that McCall really gets it right here or McCall really gets it wrong there. We don't have to jump to these complete conclusions of figuring it all out. It's okay that we can walk away with some questions. We might wonder why some of these things are in the Bible. Why can't it simply be that David triumphs into the city and that the presence of God has come alive among the people in a way that absolutely no one can spoil, that no one can touch. But in response to McCall's rebuke, we see a side of David that maybe feels a little different than the one who was just praising God and ushering in the ark. But again, at the same time, that phrase once more, at the same time, we know that David still loves God and God still loves David. The relationship remains. And likewise, McCall loves God and God loves McCall. 
It really is such a rare opportunity to see such a close-up journey of faith and relationship with God as we see with David in Scripture. We, those who are diving into the text today, have the chance to see the text, read the text, and hear the text, and hear that David is a man after God's own heart. It's a phrase that comes up many times in First and Second Samuel. David is after God's own heart. He is striving, not saying he's perfect, but he's working towards it. And no matter what, there is an astonishment before God that remains in David's heart. There are moments when our humanity can hinder our glorification of God. Again, to use that phrase, though, at the same time, though, our humanity, our gifts and our graces that each of us possess that help us work together to the building of God's kingdom are precious and good to God. Our relationship with God is not purely insular. It's communal. God desires us to hear people, to consider perspectives. This is important to God. And last week, for a story in this, I had the chance to serve at Aldersgate Camp as a counselor to middle school girls, 11 of them. And our camp had just finished the trolley, which is a low ropes element course, which is like a team building exercise. And it's where the campers have to basically work together to move these wooden planks from point A to point B, and they have to work together and move their feet, okay? And there are lots of twists and turns in all of this, so the staff leader tells them what they can and cannot do. So from the beginning, the only objective is you have to go from here to over there. But then it gets a little more difficult, so the staff person might say, well, now you can't speak at all. Or the staff person might say, English is forbidden. Or you can only speak in gibberish. All these different things. They might take someone out of the trolley so it's harder to get it up and down. But there's curveballs. And watching low ropes, I've watched it a lot of times, watch kids do low ropes. It's always very, very interesting. Sometimes more fun than others. <laughs> but this one was particularly beautiful. At the debrief, because there's always a debrief, of course, the staff member asked them, how was that for you all? And just about all of these middle schoolers responded saying, with you know, a surprised tone, it was kind of hard. And in my experience, it's very uncommon at the trolley for middle schoolers. Usually you get done and they're like, it was a piece of cake, it was nothing. But one of our campers said, I thought we were just going to go from point A to point B, but then there was all these other things we had to do. And the staff member then asked saying, okay, well, how do you think you all handled it? And another camper just said, well, we just worked together and we kept trusting that we would just work together. Now, anyone leading low ropes or team building courses or anything like that, like the trolley, is looking for certain answers, right? Answers that ensure the participants got the lesson. 
perfect. You know that it takes all of us to move this from point A to point B. But I have to say, there was so much more happening here in the lives of these campers. For other questions throughout the week, their answers came at such ease. Because they knew who God is. They know who God is in their lives and in other people's lives. It was a pattern throughout the week. Questions such as, what brings you comfort when you're frustrated or when you're sad or annoyed was met with God? What do you do when you might feel that way? Where do you go? I go to my loved ones. I go to God in prayer. A lot of times we might chalk those up to Sunday school answers, that they just know what to say, that it's just the right thing to say, so they just say it. But I have to say, seeing these kids, there's no way that I can chalk up any of these answers as simplistic. There was an abundance at play in these answers, feelings of joy and hope in their bones, mindsets that rejoiced in one another, that rejoiced in their siblings in Christ because they knew that the love of God was over all of them. I think these responses reveal who God is, a God who desires for our participation, who invites us into the work of the kingdom. And it was so abundantly clear that these middle schoolers were resting in the promise of God. They just knew it in their bones. And sometimes in faith, we struggle, oftentimes, I would say, to get from point A to point B. The journey can and is a struggle at times. It can be joyous, though, as well. And there were struggles for David. There were struggles for McCall. And there will be hard moments for us. There are hard moments for us, times that are awkward and that we struggle. And the resting in God bit can be difficult. At some points, though, we have to go out of the way to learn about and experience this whole resting in God thing. We hear about rest all throughout scripture. God rested on the seventh day. God takes seriously Sabbath. Jesus rested in God all the time in the Gospels. And this morning, I wonder if there is a person you know who, as one of my professors would say, is in the habit of resting in God. It's an interesting thought this habit of resting in God, someone who delights in the company and the presence of God, not a person who has all the answers, but one who carries a joy that can only be found in God. Not one who is void of questions or concerns, but someone who dwells in the house of the Lord with an infectious spirit. I think that those middle school campers were doing just that. They are in the habit of resting in God. And so God calls us, God called David, God called McCall, all of us, God's people, to boldly proclaim, to unapologetically dance before God. And so as we dance and sing, towards being in the habit of resting in God, our movements and our voices 
express the love of God and the flourishing that God desires for each of us. And so I want to ask us again, what might God be hearing, telling us to hear today? What might God be placing on our hearts, knowing and feeling the complexities of the world, our lives? How might God be inviting us to be in the habit of resting in God? So I want you to think of that question again as we read the psalm once more. How might God be inviting you to be in the habit of resting in God? Hear these words. The king rejoices in your strength, Lord. How great is his joy in the victories you give. You have granted him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. You came to greet him with rich blessings and placed a crown of pure gold on his head. He asked you for life and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. Through the victories you gave, his glory is great. You have bestowed on him splendor and majesty. Surely you have granted him unending blessings and made him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord through the unfailing love of the Most High. He will not be shaken. Let's sing together. Be exalted, be exalted, be exalted in your strength. We will sing, we will sing. We will sing and praise your holy name, O God. Uh, Let's prepare to uh, share in Holy Communion today. And as we do, I got to thinking of the analogy to the scripture. And in a sense, uh, they were celebrating God's presence in a way that uh, David just completely got lost in. And we to have a symbol of God's presence, which is the bread and the cup. So I thought about inviting you to just dance your way to communion today, and I felt like maybe that might make some of us uncomfortable. But I wonder what it might be like to do it a little different, at least today, uh, to just let down all sort of the, the stuff, the voices in your head and the, the, the complexity that we heard in the scripture, and simply rejoice in God's presence, to, to just find some, some joy that God is with you in whatever else is going on in your life, that God is faithful and has proven himself faithful through his, history, through generations. So your life, you may see a piece of this. Uh, communion invites us into the fuller story in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, in the whole story of Israel, and in people along the way who have found a a way to, to rejoice, to remember that God's present in their life and their situation. 
And we find this most clearly in Jesus, who on the very night that he was betrayed, took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take ye, this is my body, which is given for you. And when the supper is over, he took the cup, again, giving thanks, said, this is the cup of a new covenant, a new promise poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Each time you drink it, remember me. And so we do. We remember not in some abstract way. We remember that God's present for you in the, the, the real complexity and in, in the situations of your life, that God is present with us and in our world. And so we don't have to throw up our hands. We simply remind ourselves, we remember, we come back to the story again and again and again of a God who is, who is consistently faithful and always present. As we prepare to come to that, whether you dance or not as you come down, uh, let's, let's pray together and ask for all inhibitions to fall away, God. We, we, we simply want to stand before you today like David did. And there might be a voice in our head saying um, this or that. There might be some questions that we don't have figured out. But God, we want to be with you and you want to be with us. And we do want that joy that comes from, from letting everything else fall away to simply be with you, to find life and life to the full in you, to find joy in you, and to remember that you will never leave us or forsake us, that you are eternally faithful, that you're going to walk with us in the things that we have coming up in the week ahead, and that you're going to walk with us through every moment of our lives until the very end in the trust that nothing in life or death can separate us from you. And so that even in these moments, you invite us to the celebration of eternity life to the full in your presence forever. This meal reminds us of that great heavenly banquet that will be joy in your presence forever. And so God, meet us here. We come humbly before you just as we are, trusting that you have made all things possible for us to be with you and for you to be with us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.